Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. The most passionate food and wine lovers, listen here. And if you're a food enthusiast, well then you are definitely in the right place. It's my goal every week to feed your soul, and since we all aspire to live the best life, we dish on this show because food is central to all of our lives. You'll hear me talk about fabulous food, wine and spirits, travel, health, and more, from the politics of food to the shared plate, from wine wisdom to heart healthy advice, it's all here. And I have grand guests and artisans, celebrity chefs, and authors who will share their best knowledge. So do stay tuned because there's so much to learn. Fresh strawberries, they're perfuming the markets right about now. Oh, and this month is the good life in a bowl of cherries, literally. Summer is no doubt here. The corn and the tomatoes, they're getting sweeter, right? And soon your neighbors will be forcing the zucchini that's taken over their gardens on you. So if you're looking for gastronomic inspiration, this is your show. And know that I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com. You can also become a friend and a fan on social at Chef Jamie Gwen. And if you happen to have missed a show or want to master a topic, you can find my podcasts on iTunes, of course. You see, art comes in all forms. I just happen to love the form that you can eat. And summer pesto, oh, it's one of the things I love to eat. It is a beautiful thing. I like to kick off this show with a tutorial of sorts, and I hope to make you the best cook you know. So let's talk pesto because pesto changes everything. It's amazing tossed with angel hair. It's beautiful on grilled vegetables. I love it with poultry and seafood as a marinade for lamb chops. It's great as a spread for a sandwich that's picnic friendly. And now is my favorite time of year to make and eat pesto. Because basil is beautiful and abundant in the summer months, so I make as much uh, pesto as possible rather, and I freeze it in small quantities. And then when winter comes along, I pull a pesto ice cube from the freezer and I get a little taste of summer. I love the versatility of pesto as well. Have you ever mixed it into chicken salad? It's so good. Or how about using it as a flavor enhancer for an herbaceous crab cake? You can bake it into bread. You can mix it with mayo. You can add it to a salad dressing. It really adds herby flavor to almost everything. And the traditional Italian recipe is made with basil and pine nuts, Parmesan cheese, garlic, and olive oil. If you ask any good Italian, they'll tell you. But because I love to mix it up, if you simply change a few ingredients in pesto, you can sort of jump around the globe. For example, if you use equal parts of basil, cilantro, and mint, or even Thai basil, if you exchange the pine nuts for peanuts and you add a touch of sambal, you get an Asian pesto, which goes great with shrimp on the grill. Now, if you use hazelnuts instead of pine nuts and you serve it with roasted chicken, you get a taste of France. Or if you substitute pecans, it'll take you down south and it is luscious 
finished on a pork chop or even mixed into potato salad. Because with fresh herbs and vibrant color, you really can't lose. I happen to love pistachios in my pesto. It's just rich and luscious and delicious. And when it comes to making a pretty and perfectly balanced pesto, you just have to know the formula. So pesto has five components. It has some sort of mix of herbs. It has acid, typically lemon juice. I love lemon zest in it as well. Uh, some kind of cheese, toasted nuts, and oil, and really a generous amount of olive oil to blend everything together. And once you know the method, you can make endless combinations. And don't be afraid to play around with pesto either. You can use up everything like fennel tops or even that last handful of arugula in the fridge. Now, you can also get creative if you have an overflow of one particular herb growing rampant in your garden. So if you made it with parsley and you had a parsley pesto, it would be similar to like a chimichurri. And for classic Italian taste, you could add in Grana Padano, which is the godfather of Parmesan cheese and my favorite. And then you could spread that pesto on sourdough with grilled mushrooms. Oh, sounds delicious right about now. If you made a pesto based with cilantro, then it would be like a salsa verde or... If you make it with primarily mint, then you get a, a Mediterranean spin and it's beautiful on lamb chops or even mixed into a boiled orzo. Now, speaking of orzo, let's say you want to use it up. You've got a handful of cherry tomatoes you've cut in half from the fridge, maybe some sun-dried tomatoes, some cooked pasta left over from the night before. Toss in that pesto and you have what is the ultimate pasta salad. Now, for the traditional basic Italian recipe of pesto, you need just that handful of ingredients, as I mentioned, but let me give you the perfect technique. Now, I start with a food processor, albeit you can use a mortar and a pestle, and I actually think it makes for beautiful handmade pesto if you have the time, uh, but so many of us are running short on time, and the food processor comes in really handy when you're mixing up a batch of pesto. I throw the garlic cloves in first, and I mince them fine because I like my pesto to be smooth and have nice viscosity and velvety. And if you're not a fan of the pungent raw flavor of garlic, you can always use uh, roasted garlic cloves, or even some chefs have been known to saute the garlic first, cool it, and then use it in their pesto. After the garlic is finely minced, I add the pine nuts for a traditional pesto and the grated cheese. I like Parmesan and Romano combined, and I process until a paste. And then I add in the tender herbs. And once the basil leaves are in the food processor or a mix of herbs of your choice, run the processor and feed the oil in a steady stream through that feeding tube of your food processor. Now, you can actually do pesto as a dump recipe where you just put it all in at the same time. But after a day or two in the fridge, the pesto tends to separate. 
And if you treat it like a vinaigrette, the emulsification happens from the steady stream of oil into the ingredients, and you'll find that your pesto will hold together better. Now, you'll season with salt and pepper, and you can refrigerate it for about a week before the flavor tends to dissipate or uh, you start to lose the flavor. And as I mentioned before, pesto freezes beautifully for about three months or so. Now, if you have any pesto left in the bowl that just didn't fit in the jar or the plastic container, Mix it into softened butter and make garlic bread. Oh, yes. Or stir it into a bit of cream for pesto alfredo. Or mix it into your Caesar dressing. Because if you really want your summer dishes to come alive with flavor, you just add pesto. Now, I have a bevy of pesto-inspired recipes posted at chefjamie.com, so please do check it out. And listen here. Oh, it's time for food news And here's some news you can use that really excites me. So there's a new non-dairy milk in town. Have you heard about Oatly? Oatly is a Swedish company that was founded about 25 years ago by a science professor who was looking for um, a new way to produce milk from something other than cows. And albeit almond milk uh, was just coming, uh, you know, into play, but he knows and found it to be, and according to statistics, uh, it's true, almond milk is not particularly eco-friendly. So in Sweden, oats are an abundant crop. And he pioneered the food science technology to use enzymes to liquefy oats into a creamy, rich milk. They also retain their healthy digestion-boosting fibers. And you can search for it. Go to Oatly, O-A-T-L-Y.com. And please know, I haven't tasted it yet. So uh, do let me know. Please let me know when you taste it because I can't wait I am uh, actually a milk drinker, I will say, but I love an alternative and I love a good cappuccino. So I'm all for it. You can email me direct, by the way, to dish at any time, jamie at chefjamie.com. Speaking of dishing, Stacey Adamondo is in the house. I am very thrilled to have my Savour friend back. In fact, recently named the executive editor of Savour Magazine, the magazine for serious gastronomes. Stacy is here to dish on the tastes of the sea. Oh, urchin and mussels and more. Oh, my. And before the end of the hour, Joe Guerrera is sharing a fishy tutorial. Please don't touch your dial. There's lots more delicious conversation right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Don't go away. This is where you'll get your quick fix of culinary entertainment every weekend. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. In his debut cookbook, Joe Guerrera, a 40-year veteran of the seafood business and one of New York's most beloved fishmongers, is on a mission to teach the world to cook seafood. From the basics of sourcing to his best tips for poaching, grilling, frying, and sautéing fresh fish, Joe takes the intimidation out of it. 
And as the owner of Citarella, a group of popular Epicurean markets, which started with one of the original and most respected neighborhood seafood shops in New York, Joe supplies both home cooks and prestigious chefs all across the United States with their fresh fish offerings, selling two million pounds of seafood per year. And let me tell you, Joe knows fish. Here with the fresh catch is Joe Guerrera, and I am delighted. Hi, Joe. Glad to have you. Thank you, Jamie. How are you? I'm well, and you? Very well. Good. I'm glad. Okay. Happy to be here. Uh, and I'm so thrilled uh, because you're sort of a living legacy, and I mean that uh, as a compliment in our industry. And I love that you shared your start in the business, your story in the book, because from your family's fish shop in Greenwich Village to your big break with Wolfgang Puck, it's been a journey, hasn't it? It's been a real blessing. Yes. But, you know, one of the reasons why it's a blessing is because it's never been work to me. I love what I do, and I can honestly tell you, I never said, oh, I need a vacation. Those words have never come out of my mouth. I just love what I do. And, And it comes through. It really does. It's evident. I wish I would have written this book about 15 years ago, but I was building a business then. Right. And I didn't have the infrastructure. And now I've hired a few more upper management people, so I was able to put the effort into writing this book. And I think it should be noted, uh, credit to you and kudos, you employ almost a 1,000 people. Uh, a quarter of them, 250 or so, I know, have been with you 20-plus years And that is a testament to who and what you are, but also to spreading the gospel and to really believing in what you do and paying it forward. And there are chefs across this country that wouldn't place an order without calling Joe Guerrero. We know that. You know, Wolfgang Puck gave me my start too, Joe. I was 16 years old, staging in his kitchen at Eureka. And I looked at all the business cards on a photo in your book, and those are all the great restaurants of our time. Let me tell you, that's where the food revolution started, in California, yes. not New York. It started all in California. Yeah, and, and those chefs have, uh, have brought us a long way, as have you. Okay, I know you don't like rules, but let's talk fish and seafood. There are a few hard and fast rules that you live by and you share when you're cooking fish. So can you review all seven, please? Start with number one. Well, first of all, you, you need the freshest ingredients. I, I, talking about the fish, yes. talking about good olive oil, mm-hmm. talking about good sea salt. Mm-hmm. You don't want table salt. You want all the finest ingredients always. Second, you never use a thermometer. Right. When you're cooking seafood, you need time. And in most professional kitchens, as you would know, there's a second clock hanging on the wall for, for sautéing or for, for grilling. Everything is according to time. And by the way, if your cell phone rings... Don't answer it. No. <laughs> the only thing we're allowed to pause for is a sip of Chardonnay, right? At the most. At the most. <laughs> the only time you can look at your cell phone is if you, if you put it on a timer. Yes. For 30 seconds. Then you're allowed to. That's it, but right. Otherwise, you're not, you're not. And then you say, and I think this is interesting um, because we all get haphazard and, and might not do it. You buy fresh fish from the fishmonger, but one must always rinse and pat it dry. Always. Always. Except except when you open a clam or you open an oyster. Right. But all flesh fish. Flesh fish. Should be dried. Number five in the Joe Guerrero rules of Joe Knows Fish, uh, that pan or grill or otherwise, it better be smoking hot, right? Better be hot. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you can't get the sear that you want. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, at the same time, which 
the next two, uh, number five and number six, are probably together. And the reason why they're related is because when the grill or the pan is not hot, mm-hmm. you need to get the sear for the coloring right. and for cooking purposes. Yes. So that's why it has to be hot. Yep. But then, once it's that hot, be patient. What, if, if you want it rare, you, you, a piece of tuna, you'll do it for 90 seconds on a side. Mm-hmm. And if you want it medium, you'll do it for maybe two minutes on a side. And if you want it well done, you could do it three minutes on a side. But you only flip it once. Right. And no I, reason to go back and forth. I think that there are so many reasons only to flip fish once. I mean, you lose something in a delicate piece of protein the more you mess with it. And like you said, if you've got the heat right and the timing on point, you should only have to flip it once. And only one time. That's the masterful part of cooking fish. And with that said, I think practice makes perfect, right? Of course. Yes. But even in the book, even to grill a whole fish, which everybody see, which a lot of people will think is an insurmountable job, I personally have a French grill, and I put it across two burners, and I get all the heat I want. Yeah. Um, and you, you put a whole, uh, about a one-pound fish, mm-hmm. bronzino mm. or red snap or whatever you want, but you put it on for five minutes. Just put it on. Look at the clock. When it hits 459, grab it by the head (laughs) and turn it over and do the same thing for five minutes on the other side. What's the weight of that fish, Joe, on average? About a pound. About a pound. So that's the five-minute rule for a whole fish. Do you stuff the inside like I'm a fennel fronds, lemon, preferably Meyer lemon kind of girl? I'll I'll put some lemon and some rosemary twigs. Yeah, you, you cook very simply. I love I that you appreciate the flavor and the texture and the profile of the fish. There's not a single recipe in the book that has a, a whole list or bevy of ingredients. Well, no, that's what I do. Yeah. You know, I am a, a purist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a funny story. Nowadays, you have so many different oysters from all up and down the eastern seaboard, even up and down... The, the West Coast, and I see these people, they're trying different oysters. Mm-hmm. So they order six of one, six of another, six of another, six of another. But I'm watching the, I'm watching the table next, next, next to me, mm-hmm. and they're putting cocktail sauce, they're putting mignonette sauce on it, they're putting vinegar, they're, putting, they're, they're squeezing lemon, they're putting, putting horseradish. How could you possibly taste the different profiles of each oyster. Joe, I love that you're sharing your passion um, and continuing to spread the gospel. And I credit you so for 40 years of an extraordinary legacy. Uh, there is no doubt, doubt we all know that Joe knows fish. And congratulations on the book. Um, thank, thank you, you for sharing your passion, of course. The essential information you need and want to know about how to buy, prepare, and cook fish perfectly and simply every time is shared in Joe Knows Fish. It is Joe Guerrera's Great Joy of Seafood, and the book is available on Amazon and at Citarella.com, and you can follow on social at Joe Knows Fish. We are no doubt making you the best cook you know, so don't touch your dial. There's lots more delicious conversation right after this break.
Show your great taste. There's delicious conversation in your radio every weekend. Chef Jamie Gwen here. The summer issue of Savour magazine has just released and it is chock full of glorious new ideas and inspiration and recipes for the dog days of summer. The current Savour magazine, the culinary publication for very serious foodies, of which I am a huge fan, is all about the taste of the sea, hunting for sea urchin in Sonoma, Italy's beloved anchovies, the famous mussels of France. And Savour's new executive editor, Stacey Adamondo, is here with Insight. Hi, Stacey. I'm glad to have you back. Hi, Jamie. I am so glad to be back. Well, thank you. And congratulations on your new role and kudos to you. Thank you. Yes, we love a woman at the helm. I love the new design (laughs) of Savour, the the content. Thank you for noticing. Yes, we have a really cool new update to our cover. We have Mm. thicker, more beautiful pages than ever. And we even introduced some new sections into the magazine including a global cooking section, which I'm sure you are all over, right? Yes, I was all over that. I was all over the (laughs) map of the world and where each of the articles uh, applied to. Uh, It was sort of like one of those bucket lists where you put a push pin everywhere you want to go. That's what it made me feel like. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, we feel that our international range is really unique and severe. So, right, we introduce the map. It'll be illustrated by a different person every month, which is so cool. And it's going to show all of the places that we wrote articles about in each issue, which is amazing. That is amazing. And I will tell you, we have a lot to dish on because I love to highlight the stories. And I got to the sort of middle point of the magazine where I'm usually starting to look forward to the last page with that beautiful imagery and (laughs) some story about food culture from a far off place. And I realized I still had so many pages to go. So when you say you added 50% more of really inspiring information, you weren't kidding. Yeah, well, and I feel like people have two reactions to the issue. You know, it feels thicker and it looks thicker, but I think you're right that it doesn't hit you until you're halfway through. And people keep saying to me, well, the issue looks so great. It looks so great. And then they come back and they say, oh, my God, I finally had time to sit and read through the whole thing and, like, whoa, right. you know? Yeah. So I, it's like a, it's a twofold, like, rediscovery of Savour. So we're really excited about it and very proud. Well, and you should be. So let's discover Savour again, please. I'd like to kick off the conversation with an acknowledgement. You are covering Tastes of the Sea in the issue, as you call it, and you recognize yeah. in your editor's note, though, um, that we need to be aware of the fact that our oceans are in trouble and that you are highlighting and we need to be conscious of safe and sustainable options, right? You know, the oceans felt to us, you know, we say a lot of times that we follow food back to its source and the oceans to us felt like, well, like the most boundless source of all, right? But they're only going to stay that way for so long if we keep up at the rate that we're eating fish and and fishing fish and uh, using the techniques that we use on such a large scale. So Mm -hmm. part of the reason we wanted to do this issue, you know, instead of a summer grilling issue or a lot of the things that we've covered in the past was that we feel like right now is a really, really important time to turn your attention back to the oceans and say, what can I do? What can I learn more about? And I think this issue like really, really drives that home. 
I agree. And I will say I found it very enlightening and I think everyone should read it because there are a lot of wonderful things happening in our oceans with people who are doing good things. And if you know what to eat, there's actually a bounty of things you can eat to support. And I'm all about eating to support, Stace. You know that. (laughs) So, uh, yeah. It's all in the name of support. Uh, Thank you. Research and development. So let's talk seaweed first. I actually saw Bren Smith for the first time on 60 Minutes. This is a gentleman who is being credited for doing his part in a big way to save our food system through kelp farming and it's amazing. <laughs> like, I love that a kelp farmer made it onto 60 Minutes first and foremost. Don't you? He's actually, he is the first story that runs in the new issue because basically I talked to so many experts in different fields when making this issue, and all of them seem to somehow at some point bring up this guy, Brent Smith, and they're like, you know, he's cool, he's rugged, he doesn't want any fame, he's not doing this for attention, but... At the same time, I think he's kind of going to save our whole food system. Right. That's a big claim, you know? He's pretty powerful. And what he's doing with kelp is sort of um, the best way you could put the double-edged sword of of the ocean predicament, right? So he's um, bettering us through seaweed, but he's also creating uh, co-op concepts with uh, fish farming and otherwise. So he's nurturing the whole ecosystem. Exactly. The long story short is that he feels that this model of farming kelp underwater, so he's based in Groton, Connecticut, um, he thinks that this actually is restoring the oceans and really absorbing, you know, kelp can absorb about five times as much carbon dioxide as land plants can. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, it also kind of helps rebuild the coastal ecosystems that are there and sort of acts as like a sanctuary for marine life. And he even says that the kelp can act as a buffer to protect the coastline when there are storm surges and all these other changes that are coming along with climate change. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, even just those couple of things just blew our mind and we wanted to go see, you know, go out in the boat and see what he was actually up to. It was really, really fun. Yeah, very cool. Uh, let's take a moment to talk bay bugs. Shall we? I'm not sure about the name, um, but it was the first I had learned of them. Very sweet lobsters. Like we should plan a trip to Australia right now. I feel the same. Let's do it. Let's okay. Hop on a plane. Let's go. Um, so this is the the Aussies sort of summer equivalent of what we might do with Maryland crabs or crawfish. Like they really just sort of flood their tables with these things. Um, they look sort of like mini lobsters, and they don't have the big pincher claws. They just have a couple more slender legs and these big floppy tails. So they look a little bit alien-like, and there's mm-hmm. a huge picture of them in the magazine. But basically, they're just really beloved and kind of like a go-to food for Aussies around the coast. Yes, and it's not that they're exporting them. This is something that you plan a trip oh, and indulge yeah. in, right? Believe me, we tried every <laughs> string we could pull to get some of those out here. And they I kept bet. saying, well, it's just not going to be great if you get them frozen and to ship them live would be insane. So we're, we're basically planning our trip out there. Right. We had a, a great local write this piece for us. We'll travel for food. 
I loved reading about fish sauce in Vietnam. And and there is a whole hour of conversation there, really, because or more or a dinner party's worth or days or weeks on end, um, because there is a family still producing fish sauce in Vietnam on what started as on a small scale. I happen to love fish sauce. I think it is one of oh. the ultimate secret ingredients, like a drop of it. Definitely. Right? The je ne sais quoi, the, the salty, briny, tangy, you don't know it's there, but yep. it's Back so... everything. Yeah, you, it makes everything craveable. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk yeah, about I the family. Am, my, yeah. I'm Italian-American and we use our fish sauce. I use fish sauce. I sneak it into my, uh, my pasta sauce. So oh, you do, in your red sauce? Secret. I do, yep. Okay, Stacy, I won't tell anybody, I promise. Don't tell anyone. No, sure. <laughs> very many readers or listeners. Highlight the fish sauce story, if you would. Yes. Yeah, so I loved this because it kind of had this great, um, you know, immigrant story alongside the sort of food success story. But basically, a Vietnamese immigrant to the States, you know, lived with his mother who absolutely missed and loved this kind of like funky fermented sauce that she grew up eating but it was just nowhere to be found in California when they arrived there um, a few decades ago. So he basically did what any good son would do. Hmm. He left his job. Um, he worked in Silicon Valley, and he went back to Vietnam, bought a friend's uh, fish sauce barrel house, and then launched this company that actually ended up becoming beloved in Vietnam, but also the biggest Vietnamese fish sauce brand in America, which is Red Boat. So, you know, our writer went and visited the factory and really learned about the aging of fish sauce, how it starts off like a beautiful amber color and turns into that great dark caramelly brown color that we love and know, and how it's sort of brought, you know, the Vietnamese foodways a more prominent position in the global stage and in, in the state. What a great success story. It really is. And I, the photos are super beautiful. The photos are super beautiful. And I think it builds, and this is something Savour is so wonderful at. And you and your team, I think, I know are deeply rooted in this concept. It brings an appreciation to taking the bottle out of your pantry and knowing where it comes from, knowing totally. that it's made with love, knowing that it has a backstory, it makes it yeah. taste better. It does. And every food has that beautiful heritage story, you know, and we sort of take them for granted, I think, a little bit because we have access to so many wonderful things. But when you really trace them backwards, it's like somebody fought tooth and nail to get that thing here in the first place. So. I, I totally agree. Stacy. if you'd pause there, we need to take a quick break. When we come back, more with Savour Magazine's executive editor, Stacy Adamondo, as we dish on the tastes of the sea. A delicious summer to you. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. By the way, if you've just tuned in, Stacey Adamondo is here. She is Savour's new executive editor, and their volume two 
magazine issue has released for the year. It is all about the taste of the sea. And so we're swimming our way through wonderful stories for food lovers that love to indulge in the backstory and get to know what they're eating, plan a trip, know where to go and what to eat. Um, And yes, Peru is on my list of places to eat. But I will tell you, I have very fond memories, Stacey, of uh, eating Peruvian-style ceviche in a Mm -hmm. Japanese-Peruvian restaurant in Chile, where you see a lot of the combined uh, ethnicity, culture in their uh, foodscape. And that ceviche stood out to me so bright and acidic and textural and outrageously delicious. Well, you're touching on something that we bring up in the very beginning of this story that's fascinating, which is that, you know, around certain parts of Central America and Latin America, ceviche, there's, there's a lot of forms of ceviche out there. So it's like many of the countries have their own individual take of this raw fish that's sort of dressed with a really pungent lime and sort of like fish and chili mixture, and it, it sort of lightly cures the fish. And that's very common everywhere, but the reason that we cover the Peruvian version is because it's just made such strides into this entire different category of, of food mm-hmm. in and of itself. Um, and what you mentioned about the Japanese restaurants is interesting because really, you know, largely the way that they know of ceviche now in the kind of cosmopolitan restaurants in Lima very much has a Japanese influence. A lot of uh, Japanese chefs kind of came there in the past 50 years and sort of sculpted it into its current version. So it's very, very bright. It's got this sort of bolder, hotter, more sour base than a lot of the other ceviches um, in nearby regions. And there's just a lot of creativity going into it. There's like fine knife skills and really fun, crunchy toppings like um, fried quinoa, or uh, puffed rice and chulpi corn, which is kind of a local corn in Peru. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's like just hits every note. The crunchy, the hot, the sour, the bright, the fresh. It's just fantastic. I agree with you. And there's recipes you. in this story as well. So it's just something that I feel like you should be making year-round, really. Lots of inspiration, too. That crispy quinoa idea of frying oh, yeah. cooked quinoa that's sort of partially cooked and then using it as a topping, like like it was the new crouton. Not only do I want to totally. top a ceviche with it, but I thought, okay, that's going into my next salad. Okay, I'm I'm garnishing a tomato avocado salad with it. A crispy Definitely. quinoa for everywhere for all my friends. I love that. I mean, the, the great thing about it is that it keeps well, so you can actually keep it for a couple of days after you fry it at room temperature in a nice sealed container, and yeah, then really jar. put it on everything like eggs, um, asparagus, you know, sautéed or grilled asparagus. I love it with like a green bean sauté. Mm. It's, it's really versatile. So it's the new breadcrumb. We just, we just coined it that. Yes. <laughs> I'm even thinking uh, to gild the lily and put it over a yogurt parfait. Ooh, yeah. Maybe with some dried fruit or something in yes. there. That would be delicious. Okay, add some fry to your breakfast. And by the way, you know, uh, as well as I do, that in the industry today, we don't call it fried. We call it crispy. Exactly. Exactly. Makes you feel so much better about yourself. (laughs) Sounds good for you. It does. Um, Can we discuss the uni dilemma, please? Because... Uh, So this is like one of the best 
dilemmas I've ever heard right. of. <laughs> right. And from the, a culinary perspective. A dilemma um, that is a true delicacy. Yes. Oh, so what's happening, best. this was one of our favorite stories from the issue. We had a culinary scientist pen this story. So he focused on a region of the Pacific Ocean near Mendocino, where basically sea urchins have sort of taken over. So all that beautiful kelp that we talked about that, you know, sustains lots of forms of life in the ocean and whatnot, the urchins have basically completely wiped that out. These are mostly the purple urchins, which are literally bright, like, you know, 80s and 90s generation. <laughs> neon, purple. yes. Um, neon, yeah. They're, they're really, really bright, and you can't miss Gorgeous. them. But basically, when you look underneath the ocean, which our photographers did, we have divers down there and the whole underwater shoot, they call, they see what they call ocean, uh, sorry, urchin barrens. Mm-hmm. So the kelp is gone. A lot of the fish and the, you know, sea otters who feed on the kelp have swum away and found new homes. And basically the urchins have kind of coated the ocean floor. So it's insane. And what they're trying to do is gather more uh, permits and, and allow people to have more permits to go and grab the urchins from the bottom of the ocean floor and eat them. The wide and wonderful world of recipes and cooking, wine, culinary arts, all found in Savor magazine. Their Tastes of the Sea issue on newsstands now. There is so much more to read and learn and cook from the magazine than we covered. So you'll want to grab it for a whole summer's worth of delicious inspiration. Thank you again. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of stimulating culinary conversation which I hope you enjoyed, at least that I've made you hungry or fed your soul, or both for that matter. Before I let you go, I'll leave you with my last bite. Oh, it is the summer season, and I love pie, and I love peaches, so what could be better than a peaches and cream no-cook pie? Well, you have to bake the pie crust, but get this— If you take either store-bought or homemade pie crust and you blind bake it, you know, with the weights or aluminum foil and something to weigh it down from rising while you bake it, you get a beautiful crust that you let cool and is ready to fill at a moment's notice. Then you combine cream cheese and confectioner's sugar in your electric mixer and you beat it till it's light and smooth and lovely. I like to add vanilla paste or uh, a pinch of salt as well. You then pour that quote unquote custard or cream cheese filling into the bottom of the cooled pie crust, top it with thinly sliced ripe summer peaches and you have a five ingredient summer pie that is out of this world. I will post my peaches and cream summer pie on social. I just had to swallow. I made myself so hungry. (laughs) I'm on social at Chef Jamie Gwen, and I'm here every weekend in your radio. Thank you for allowing me to share my passion and thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off and until next weekend, I hope you continue to eat well. (laughs) 